Hello and welcome to Village Podcast. I'm Morgan C. Jones. I'm mad as all hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. This is the Village Podcast from Village Magazine. This is the editor of Village, Michael Smith. We'll be talking to Michael shortly. Each week, month, year, we're going to be discussing the issues that affect all of us here in Ireland as pertaining to political corruption, accountability and indeed softer issues like culture. Um, Michael, would you mind telling us a little bit about um, about Village Magazine, about the ethos, where, where it's coming from? Village is a uh, mainly a political magazine, but also deals with culture and um, the environment and media. Um, it was set up um, by Vincent Brown, well-known uh, man around town uh, journalist in um, 2004. And uh, after a lot of um, ups and downs, it fell into my lap and, um, a few years later, in around 2008, so I've been editing it uh, since then. Very small operation. Um, it's sort of ideological. It's uh, driven by, I suppose, three precepts. The first is um, equality, and that's equality of outcome, or sort of a radical view of equality, that basically there should be redistribution of resources so everybody can participate equally um, in the good um, and then um, I suppose I see as an, an offshoot of equality is uh, is environmentalism ensuring that the next generation has the same stake in the environment uh, and in the fruits of the earth as as we've been lucky enough to have ourselves so sustainability would be the uh, the second and then the final one is um, accountability which I suppose drives a lot um, so I, I would say that we are left wing we also have a big um, environmental orientation um, we're very fact-driven, though, as well as being ideological. We would always say facts first and then apply the ideology, not the other way around. I think a lot of media, maybe, if, they're, uh, you know, if they are ideological, they tend to let the ideology get in the way of ascertaining what the relevant facts are. We try not to do that. And we're also not preachy or uh, inclined to rant. We're very fact-driven, quite dry, I like to think. I think I, I bring a certain... Uh, um, off-putting dryness to uh, no, I did. Yeah, so you walked past a puddle in the laneway and just disappeared as yes. you walked by. Yeah. But um, so we try to come out uh, as often as possible due to um, lack of energy and finance. We uh, anyway for the next year we aim to come out um, eight times. We are ambitious. The thing is expanding. This is this uh, is an exciting part of that um, expansion. There's there's good momentum. Um, but I, I suppose we specialise in, one thing we do uh, specialise in is whistleblowers. Uh, there's a big niche for that that a lot of people get, are frustrated that they can't get their stories across in, uh, in other media. Um, if you go to the Irish Times or RTE uh, with a hot story, quite often you find that once it's come through the bureaucracy, either it's not broadcast or published or else the guts of it are eviscerated. And that can be very frustrating for people. And that's probably why I got involved. I was, I was uh, chairman of Antashka and it was very difficult to get environmental stories across. So we do specialise in a sort of, it's an unusual thing, we specialise in partnerships with, um, with uh, whistleblowers or with informants. They come to us and we say, well, listen, tell the story on your own terms. Um, be, we'll do this as a, 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 as a partnership. You have a veto over it. If you don't like um, you know, the end story, you can just pull the plug on it and we won't, um, we won't print it at all. Um, 
obviously it has to be fair and it has to avoid defamation, but it's just that people are allowed to phrase things the way they want and emphasise things the way uh, they want. And we then work on making sure that we, uh, a speciality is, a, you know, in, in Village, if you're a liar, I think, to be honest, nearly all the other media, if you're a liar, they make an effort not to uh, say that. Yeah. Whereas in Village, this is great if somebody comes to me and they've got a sustainable case that somebody's telling lies or or is a liar that's great it's you know that's a great thing to 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 nail people if they are genuine delinquent same with if somebody's a racist you know once we've shown it to our satisfaction obviously the standard has to be quite high we're happy to say it it's not something that we would avoid um so yeah whistleblower so as a result of that whistleblower partnership thing we've 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 done a few stories, most of which I would say I'm frustrated that they haven't uh, entered the um, public domain on this scale. They should have. And in fact, we're going to talk to a couple of people who are behind some of those stories yeah. um, late, later today. But I suppose a couple that we have done that have um, ignited, well, the, the, the most famous one, I suppose, is the, um, the story about uh, Leo Varadkar and the, the leak. And we'll be talking to Che Bose, who is actually the, I know he doesn't like the term uh, whistleblower, but um, he was the source of that story. A lot of whistleblowers actually finish up um, destroyed or, or getting a very hard time. Characteristically, the biggest whistleblowers um, you know, g- get into deep water. A lot of them find they can't get work elsewhere. Just to cut yeah, in, to sure, yeah, yeah. given your background or the magazine's background in partnering with whistleblowers, mm. does that expose the magazine and you <clears throat> and the staff to uh, the, the weight of it if if somebody having the finger pointed at them being told, sorry, the emperor has no clothes mm. uh, and you can prove that he's walking around bollock naked. Mm-hmm. Notwithstanding all of that, mm. partnering with whistleblowers, does that leave you very exposed? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, I'm a, a lawyer by training, so this is, uh, I was never going to make a career at it, but this is a, why I can justify it is that I, I do have a good sense of what you can say. Um, so again, unlike a lot of media, we'd be looking to work out what you can say, not what you can't say. And that's quite powerful if you're doing it in partnership mm. with um, with somebody who's got a big story to tell. I mean, I think we do publish a lot of stuff that um, that um, a lot of people would say is, um, is defamatory. But um, if it's true, I'm generally um, inclined to um, think that we, that we would you know, get away with it if it ever came to a defamation action. We get lots of de- defamatory letters about defamation. A lot of legal letters we've never had to pay out on a defamation action. We got a lot of actions, um, but I think maybe there's a sense out there that we fight them or that we're careful. So we maybe get fewer now than we did before. Um, but um, there's a lot of threats. If you go through the uh, the Irish Times, most of the time they acknowledge Village's existence. It's to, to state that Village has received a writ. And actually, it's quite often, characteristically, um, people um, who report in the Irish Times as suing Village don't actually pursue it. They just, um, there's a, a thing where you uh, you lodge the, uh, your um, proceedings in the, uh, in, in the High Court tip off the Irish Times that you've done that and never serve it on the, 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 the person who you're claiming has defamed you. So nothing further materialises. So there's a lot of defamation action that I've been advised of just because the Irish Times has told me, but I've never seen any further but, uh, evidence. It's actually just a complete paper tiger. Well, it, it, that's the symptoms of it. I mean, we were... We were um, yeah, that's happened on, on several occasions. Yeah. But that's just, that, that's, that's, that's just like using a newspaper to say, you know, I'll see you in court. Well, I think defamation is um, is often used as a weapon. I don't want to say that about anyone in particular that um, has sued well, us. Well, you better but, not, because I'll sue. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, or they claimed they would anyway. But um, yeah, I mean, we've got a load of actions that are, uh, we, if I had the energy, I'd go into court and try and get them struck out. We've an action from Gemma Doherty that was never going to go anywhere after we called her a racist, which was one of the easiest uh, things to do. We've an action from the, uh, the former county manager in Donegal after we published um, serious allegations about him from, his, from the uh, former head planner in Donegal. Leo Varadkar, um, under cover of uh, dull privilege, said that um, the article we published about him was defamatory, uh, grossly defamatory, but he didn't, um, he didn't say he was going to pursue it, but he certainly hasn't pursued it. In the last week, the Irish Times reported that the um, deputy chairman of, um, of Bor Planola says that the complaint that I lodged in an article that, written, that was written in Village about him is, um, is defamatory, but again, um, I wasn't hanging around over the bank holiday um, waiting for the writs to arrive because they usually don't. So you don't have a bag, but like <laughs> the way an expectant mother has a bag packed for the maternity hospital, you don't have a prison bag constantly packed. For the, uh, well, yeah, yeah, the gear for the, the suit for the, um, for the High Court. <laughs> no, this is it. Um, but it, 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 it is a factor. I mean, I, I think that um, if you talk about defamation, that um, you know, a characteristic thing was that um, Dennis O'Brien sued because I think the the Mail reported that he wasn't philanthropic, um, and he won the case. And a lot of people in the media say this is you know Dennis O'Brien is um, you know he, he he's a terrible force against free speech and that this was closing down the media, but. There are a lot of things you can say about Dennis O'Brien that are true, like arguably yeah. <laughs> that he's corrupt. <laughs> but you can't say he's not a philanthropist because it happens to be the case. Dennis O'Brien goes down the street and he's shelling out fivers to people, who, to retainers who are coming up to him asking for money. He's a very famously, you know, I, I, I've heard he's famously um, generous and he's generous to charities. So it just happened to be wrong. So that, that was just not a good case on grounds of the simple lack of truth of the, uh, mm -hmm. of the allegation. Um, so journalists go around, there's a lot of media that will never mention Dennis O'Brien because they think that, you know, oh, oh, he'll sue. Well, he'll sue if you call, the, call him, a, uh, you know, if you say that he's not a philanthropist. But if you say something more central to his operations, like that maybe he's uh, characteristically involved in dodgy um, business practices, you get away with it. That's mm. why I'm saying it. Or, or that he won the whole country in an earthquake. <laughs> um, and for those of you listening or watching at home who don't uh, recognise that name, Dennis O'Brien, you probably know it better as beep, beep. Except here. Yes, because he's not redacted. There's nothing redacted here. We're going to be talking about that um, board plan of the story later. A little right? bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we're, yeah, mostly uh, we've brought in whistleblowers. Um, maybe we'll do less dry, dry stuff in future. Yeah. But they're big stories that we've accumulated, and I know the um, whistleblowers are keen to, um, to get stuck in. Today. Yeah, we've got so many whistleblowers on this one, it's like watching one of those panpipe bands that visit and stand in markets. Yeah, the technical name for me is not, not so much editor as whistleblowy. We're going to be talking to um, Che Bowes um, generally, but um, the big thing we'll be talking to him about is the um, story of Leo Varadkar's um, leaking of a confidential document, and I'll just go through a little bit of um, background as to how that arose um, before we speak to Che. So, um, Paddy Cosgrave, who is um, the chief executive of the Web Summit, 
um, is an old friend of mine. And in uh, the year 2020, um, he came to me with information from a few whistleblowers about alleged um, practice um, during COVID in, in, in hospitals in various places. Now, they, um, those um, informants didn't really go anywhere. We couldn't, um, we couldn't publish stuff from them. But he then introduced me to, um, to Che Bowes, um, who will explain his own background. But, um, but Che had received texts from uh, Matthew Otuhu, um, who was a doctor who was head of um, a general practitioner's uh, trade union or union um, called the um, NAGP. That was a, um, a doctor's representative organization that wasn't particularly well got uh, with government. And those texts were sort of hot. Um, they included, um, amongst other things, laddish, sexist and racist comments um, from uh, Matthew O'Toole. Um, but they also um, more significantly included Matthew O'Toole boasting um, that Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach had leaked a confidential draft uh, terms of agreement of a contract between the government and a union that was a rival to the NAGP. That was the um, IMO. Um, that Varadkar had, had, had leaked that document to O'Toole and that seemed um, to me to be um, very serious. So we printed um, a very long and intricate article peppered with screen grabs which is characteristic. There, were a lot of, um, there was a lot of visual element printing at length the actual uh, uh, WhatsApp communications um, and it showed a sort of a, a, a boasty and offensive um, uh, communications via WhatsApp. We published the article um, headlined uh, on the cover um, Leo Lawbreaker and um, I think the article was headlined Leo Always Delivers which was one of the allegations that, um, that Matthew O'Toole had sent by way of WhatsApp um, to um, to Che Bose. So the story was fed by Che Bose and it was uh, graphically illustrated by WhatsApp exchanges and it showed that amongst other things that um, Matthew O'Toole's colleagues in his union were delirious to receive this hot document that gave them sort of an advantage that they wouldn't otherwise have had vis-a-vis um, -vis their rival union. Um, and then um, they also seem to show that, uh, that O'Toole was a, a, a buddy or a mate of um, Varadkar, although Varadkar was later at pains to downplay um, the friendship and he described it as the sort of friendship where they met um, two or three times a year. So this was a, uh, this was a quantitative description of something which then gave us the opportunity to try and disprove it. So we managed to adduce um, evidence, part, mostly through um, other WhatsApp exchanges and also from the public record that showed that actually the relationship must have been closer than that because um, we could show that they'd met actually six or seven uh, times in the year that, um, that he had chosen to, 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 to say that it was more like two or three times, suggesting that the relationship, the friendship was just a uh, um, closer than um, had been stated, including on the Dahl record. So I suppose we were then determined to show two things. First of all, that there had been law-breaking, and secondly, that Fradgar had lied about the relationship with, um, with, um, with, the, the, with his mate um, um, O'Toole, which is a resigning offence to lie to the Dahl is a, is a resigning offence. So, but I suppose from my point of view, I have a, um, a, an unused... Um, degree in law and I was always very concerned in particular to frame the whole thing as um, as law breaking um, and in particular uh, we made the case in the article that there was um, a breach of the official secrets act um, 
because the information was um, confidential, the, the document was marked very clearly confidential. Uh, but we also made the case that it was a breach of the um, Criminal Justice Corruption Act 2018 because it conferred illicit benefits on um, both um, Varadkar and, um, and O'Toole, whose colleagues in the union were so pleased to get this um, document that they had no right to. Um, so anyway, all hell broke loose, broke loose when we um, when we published this story with the with the incendiary headline, and um, Varadkar issued a um, detailed but I thought somewhat ridiculous um, rebuttal, full of um, mistaken views of the law. Um, he probably shouldn't have done that. As part of that process, he admitted the facts. Um, and he apologised for errors of judgment, but he also advised that the piece was, um, he stated in the doll that the piece was grossly defamatory of him. Um, and he also was sort of unpleasant. He described, he, he decided he was going to have a, uh, a go at Village, and under uh, doll privilege, he said that um, Village was a fringe publication, and also that Village, um, that suing Village, that he was, <laughs> sorry, he was advised that suing Village would be like suing Twitter. Um, he implied that it was a publication of, 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 of straw, which is a bit unfair because we've taken care to, um, you know, we haven't, we're not um, offshore and I'm liable as editor for anything that, um, that we say. Uh, he also, which I think was scandalous and wasn't adequately picked up by the media and was sort of menacing, he said that we were, he, that we were unregulated. Well, I don't know how, what he envisaged is appropriate regulation for media should be, but we're subject, like all media, to the laws of defamation and we're also we're subscribers to the press council. So it's just was a bit... Um, off colour. Um, but anyway, another phenomenon was that the, the main media um, were reluctant to print the story. Um, they said it was, they were worried that it was defamatory. Um, the Irish Times claimed that there was a protocol that prohibited them from um, publishing screen grabs, which seemed unlikely because in the end they actually sort of, uh, in subsequent months anyway, they seemed to relish actually publishing screen grabs. So we couldn't really understand why the, the Irish Times and RTE were very loath to publish the details of the um, of the story, but they were, and they remain recalcitrant and slow, um, and they've never um, tried to interview um, either me or, or, or uh, Che Bose about it. Um, anyway, um, the logic of this was um, that uh, in the days subsequent to the publication of the article, um, that um, if it was criminal, that a complaint should be made to the guards. Um, so um, Che and I contacted the um, the guards and initiated a um, a complaint. And um, I know the guards have interviewed um, Che a couple of times and Paddy. They interviewed me three. T uh, they interviewed me three times. Um, I think the last time was in um, January. Um, anyway, there was a lot of controversy about it. it. Was a it was a difficult thing, I'm sure, for for Leo Varadkar to deal with with this um, thing hanging over him for a prolonged um, guard investigation that I think lasted nearly 18 months. But in the end, um, in the last few weeks, um, we're told that a file of several hundred pages. Um, which indicates that obviously the matter is very complex legally, which is something that we know anyway, has gone to the um, the DPP. There are various views as to how long the DPP will take um, to deal with that, and obviously it's difficult for, for, for Adker because he's due to become um, Taoiseach in, in, in December uh, under the coalition agreement. So I'm sure we all hope that the DPP resolves the matter quickly, but it is a complex file and it's going to be um, difficult to get it done in the, in, in the time, bearing in mind how complex the file is. I know how complex the file is and obviously the guards um, 
took a long time because of its complexity. Um, meanwhile, um, the popularity of Finnegal seems to um, have dived, and it's perturbing from our point of view, when it's impossible for us to get into the, uh, particularly into the broadcast media, is that um, that Leo Varadkar is constantly slagging us off, and particularly he specialises in saying that um, that. Uh, that the complaint that we lodged was politically motivated and he implies that um, some of us are um, associated with, um, I suppose, with, with, with Sinn Féin, um, with another political party, which certainly isn't true uh, in my case anyway. Um, so, um, well, I, I mean, in terms of the politics of it, um, you know, the, the magazine is a leftist magazine and Varadkar has put his head over the parapet and made it clear that he is, that, that, that he is not um, on the left. He's done some campaigns as a minister that were unsavoury on, on, on issues like social welfare. And um, from my own point of view, I'd be very concerned about his attitude to the environment. He seems to be a big stick in the mud of the of the green agenda. Um, he's very effective, he's a very good communicator, he's a talented politician, and he seems to be effective at blocking a lot of the things that maybe the Greens, if they were more uh, um, efficacious, might be able to push through. But um, the uh, article, or the, the complaint was just um, the logical upshot of, uh, 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 of the article, which was grounded um, in the facts um, and in, 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 in wrongdoing, which has been conceded, so I suppose it's a bit strange that um, that that, uh, that the um, article appeared um, that way. Ideally, maybe a whistleblower like Che Bose, he doesn't like the term whistleblower, but it, it, ideally there maybe should have been some sort of a national. Um, organization specializing in whistleblowing or in, in, in corruption to which he could have made the allegation rather than going through um, through village. But anyway, that's a role that we seem to have um, had thrust on us. And uh, in a minute, we're going to be talking to, um, to Che Bose, who was the man without which the allegation could never have been put into the public domain and the, uh, and the um, complaint made. So thanks very much for coming in. Jay, um, I'm just going to ask you general questions because I think people haven't really had an opportunity to hear what you have to say um, or what I have to say. But um, so, just to tell us a little bit about your uh, your background, I suppose your family and professional background. Um, okay, well, I mean, I'm married. Uh, I've been married twice, actually. So I'm on my second uh, um, uh, blissfully happy uh, marriage. And um, we've uh, young children. I have children from my first marriage. Many kids you have? Uh, I have four young children and four old ones. So I have four adults and four four babies. That's how, that's how I like to I know manage it mentally. Yeah. Otherwise, it sounds like I have eight children. I'm a <laughs> maniac. But uh, well, I probably am a maniac. We were all born in England, then we returned to Ireland. My dad wanted to come back to Ireland. Um, I think. Uh, he wanted to get a job back here in Dublin in Dublin Gas Company, so he came back, took the opportunity, and we, we all uh, came home. Um, Sometimes it's a bit di- difficult to understand you because of your strong English accent. Yeah, and I have a, you know, I, I, I suppose I did a DNA test recently um, to check was I English, but I have absolutely no English DNA. Apparently, I'm ninety three percent Gaelic Irish. Did you do when you left school? Uh, initially, uh, I was in the Army Medical Corps for a while and working in that sort of paramedical space for a while. So you went into the entrepreneurial side of it then? 
Yeah, I suppose in about, I think around 2000, I kind of realised that the whole health system was just impossibly screwed, seeing so much dysfunction in it, so much misery, so much money being spent, and I just thought I'd try something new myself. I think in 2004, uh, the first of them, and so it went from, from a very small company with good ideas to a very, uh, you know, uh, big uh, business within about five or three or four years, really. And you were working for the VHI at one stage? Yeah, well, when that, the H, my first encounter with the HSE and HSE Logic was when we got this contract to treat patients in the community for uh, very common but very sort of recidivist illnesses like, you know, a respiratory disease that take up huge amounts of space in hospitals, cost a fortune. Uh, and we, I came up with an idea with that we, we could transplant the care that they get in hospital on these mm -hmm. almost routine visits into the community, build a system of healthcare, we called it um, Hospital at Home, um, with a company called Tara Healthcare, we, we took a big uh, centre in the Beacon Hospital, it had just been built and it was changing hands, so we got a big space in there, we had, I think, over 150 nurses at, at the top of it, probably about 15, 16 full-time doctors, medical director, consultants, Jerry, myself, so it was a big business. And we were saving the state huge amounts of money by keeping these people out of hospital, of course, but, you know, this was about 2008, and we were asked to come in by the HC, and they said, look, we're going to have to shut the whole thing down. So, you know, it, it ended up that they actually ended up paying us a huge penalty to, to shut the contract. But I've been negotiating with the VHI to take this on, this model on, as a way of reducing uh, their spending on, on, on their insurer patients, whereby if, you know, if you get a patient at home yeah. with one of these illnesses, they get better quicker, it's cheaper, it's safer. So they wouldn't have to pay as much. So what was your biggest frustration or the biggest lesson you learned from working in the system? Well, I mean, the Irish health system is essentially this Jekyll and Hyde uh, um, anomaly where you've got a very uh, poorly managed public health system and that the deficits in that public health system uh, are used to sell private health insurance to basically 50% of the population who spend about 2 billion euros a year for fear of the public system. I and mean, if we had a public health system actually worked and people thought, well, this is fantastic and we've seen on time, we wouldn't need a private health system. But you also have some concerns that um, ideas that should be pursued in the public sector are being somehow um, appropriated by the private sector. Yeah, well, I've actually, I've come across that in, in professionally. Uh, I mean, I suppose, I suppose how my story would have come to public prominence would have been through my attempt to promote um, a community-based hospital system with no no hospital because the hospitals are very expensive. They're very, they're basically Victorian constructs where you put all the sick people together in one place, and you wait for them to get sicker. And that was proven in in COVID where we put a lot of uh, vulnerable people together and they all contracted COVID. Then we dumped them into the community, then back into the hospital. So, so the ideology was very simply: you take the the pertinent parts of that treatment and you bring them into the community. So it's actually, they've been doing this in Australia and in the United States for 40 years. And basically. what frustrations did you experience trying to pursue that? Well, I mean, the motivations in the public system in Ireland are bizarre. And I've written about this uh, elsewhere. And I think the, the analogy would be, uh, the more dysfunctional the system is, the more it can justify the ridiculous spending. Because it's the management of dysfunction uh, um, which takes precedence but, but, over you, 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 ingenuity or solving problems. I mean, not too many people in the Irish system actually want to solve the problems. But you've, you've some specific, though, um, 
problems? Uh, yeah, I mean, when we were running our own service, we were informed that, you know, we were asked to present in the UK, France, you know, people were looking at the sort of model we were doing because it was evidence-based. We were getting people better, quick, more quickly, less, you know, nosocomial infection or hospital-acquired infections because you don't catch them in your home. People were massively um, uh, far better disposed to being treated at home. I mean, so... It was working fantastic. But you were lent on to bring in particular people into the into the. Yeah, yeah. Enterprise. I mean, initially at the start of uh, when we got the a contract award, I was approached by a an individual uh, who was working in the HC at the time and advised that if we wanted to get the contract, we should uh, work with a particular other company, uh, which they had somebody very close to them working in. So that was I was approached on that from that was at, at a very early stage. Uh, and it was intimated to me that if we were to be successful, that would be a very wise move for us to make. So I ignored them, of course. I told them to fuck off, and I just went ahead anyway. Uh, but from a very early stage, you were influenced, and the backslapping and the sort of nods and the winks and the golf clubbing goes on. And is it true to say that your frustration with that um, animated your um, instigating the, um, the the you know the the story about um, the leaking of the of the contract you, you, you were very yeah. frustrated with the um, I was frustrated yeah I mean and the, the community hospital Ireland idea which is still a, a living idea and we, we're still talking to people about it it's a not-for-profit ideology where you know you it, it can make money but the money gets plumbed plumb back into local communities to prevent and educate about chronic diseases and stuff like that so I was lucky enough that I had an income I had done okay you know I was relatively secure so I could you know five years ago decide I wanted to try and do something new I knew the system I knew a lot of people in the system I knew a lot of politicians I and I was offered this role um, uh, as the interim head of, of, of the second biggest uh, medical union in the country the NAGP to assess what was happening in the union and it turned out the union was essentially it was it was totally defunct but it was mm. limping along with serious issues on governance and, 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 and cash and, and various issues which are public I think Susan Mitchell did a big story of that in, in the Sunday Business Post so as part of that I was still trying to promote this community hospital ideology where and not for profit and I was told by uh, uh, let's say probably the most senior uh, civil servants in the country in, in regard to health that nobody would take enough some seriously. specific ones yeah uh, there were specific ones, yeah. Some specific civil servants, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, you, who you've named, I think. Say again? Who you have named. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm working with people like Tony O'Brien in the HSC. And I was told very clearly, if you want to run this as a not-for-profit, no one's going to take you seriously and no one's going to contract you with you. Mm -hmm. Because if it's not going to make money and then on the periphery make money for others, we, we're just not interested in it. It's a great idea. I mean, Leo Varadkar wrote me a letter saying it's fantastic. You're working with Jim Breslin, Department of Health. And Jim is very good. I mean, the evidence base for this type of stuff, it works. But the problem is you have these huge infrastructural projects going on in the community which need to be funded. Okay, if something's so operating dysfunctionally, you, you still need to fund that dysfunction. And it's, it costs billions a year to but do But moving it. from that mm -hmm. um, to the... So, so, so you've, you met um, Matthew O'Toole. How did that then feed into the um, mm -hmm. the... the um, leaks story well Matthew was the uh, president the youngest ever president of the NAGP and I approached Matthew with my idea about this community hospital idea because do community doctors are critical to that rather than sending an elderly patient into hospital 
the, the model we were building was that you would be able to send the hospital into the patient's home to keep them in the community, to keep them well, preventative healthcare, lots of very common sense Scandinavian ideology. So I presented that to Matt. He thought it was a fantastic idea. He, he thought it could transform medicine in Ireland. They had around 2,000 uh, GP members and general practitioners are the gatekeepers of the health system. They refer the patients to the consultants. They, they sort of are the underappreciated sort of uh, foot soldiers of the, of the system. So I thought it was critical to get them involved rather than, rather, rather than the consultants, which also didn't work in my advantage, to my advantage because consultants are very powerful. The IMO would represent consultants and the NAGP would represent the community doctors, the general practitioners. So I made the pitch to the guys. They thought it was great. I became friendly with Matt. He was a very bright, dynamic, uh, attractive guy. He was young. Um, he, he represented a sort of a freshness I think um, in how he was dealing with politicians, he could present well. And, you know, I just thought this is a superb uh, guy to sort of advocate for what we want. And we became friendly. He subsequently asked me to come into the union as the interim uh, chief executive because I ran, you know, medical businesses as we've discussed. And I started that by doing a report into the governance of the union. And I did that over a period of three weeks. And while that was going on, this uh, document, which the union had been trying to procure, I'd imagine, for, for, for long before I'd arrived. I mean, I'd only arrived maybe two weeks when it actually landed. So I was unaware of the value of the document, essentially, until later when I realised what, what, what we'd actually seen occur. This so, is the, the heads of terms for the contract. Yeah, the contract or the, the document, whatever that uh, Leo Vrager had, had covertly given him. Um, the, so, the, the draft of, a, of the head of terms for... Yeah, the, just the background the, to it is the, uh, there were huge cuts made to the funding of general practice in, I think, 2008, 2010 uh, period. I'm, I stand to be corrected on that. The FEMPI, I think, financial... Uh, cuts. So they were to be reversed as part of a deal to get doctors to be more productive, to do more with chronic disease, etc. So the only people that the state would negotiate with were the IMO, the Irish Medical Organization, who basically represented, you know, and they were quite. The state was quite hostile to the NAGP. They didn't. Yeah, like they the, were. They were. The NAGP was, was seen as more radical, more militant, uh, and in my view, quite rightly so. But the state obviously relished the idea that they'd have two. But take, take us through then how, how the. Um, you got these um, documents that finished up in the in the village story about the the leak. Yeah, well, I mean, the documents were shared with me. I've heard all sorts of ridiculous things that I took the documents from people's phones that I had because I was the CEO, <laughs> or that I'd, uh, you know, there's some sort of uh, bizarre uh, reality to it. What happened was Matthew shared this with me. He had informed me he needed to get the document. That was very important. I wasn't focused on that. I didn't even really connect with it because I was focused on trying to uh, assess and present the realities of where the union was and it was a basket case and I, I did present and suggest that it should be shut down immediately that was in breach of company law it was trading insolvent it was in breach of numerous revenue laws and you know it owed over a couple of hundred grand to the revenue alone it had done for a long time it was trading out of a domestic house it was, it was a mess so I presented that and on the basis of my report the union basically collapsed because I suggested to the to the committee of the union, which remember, you know, among whom were the richest doctors in the country, some earning more than one million euros a year in general medical fees from the state, that if they wanted to contribute, and I would contribute alongside them to pay the bills, change the governance, 
but they refused to do that. Uh, and the next day after I presented my report, they reappointed the CEO I'd done the report on, bizarrely. So that's how, you know, that I began to see well, this, this place, this thing doesn't want to get fixed. It doesn't need to get fixed. So there's obviously some sort of benefit in this. But you situation. still have good relations with um, <coughs> Matthew Toole at this stage. Why did you finish up leaking a, 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 or sharing a, a, a trove of correspondence with him, with, um, with Village? Well, I think Matthew, I don't, I, I don't have any issue with Matthew. I think he's a good person. I think he was naive in, in how he, he dealt politically. Um, I think he may have been manipulated somewhat by the older, wiser heads in the NAGP to get proximity and access to, to Leo Varadkar. And you can imagine if you're an old guy on a board of a big organization and you get this young dynamic guy, he's gay, he's modern, he's, you know, uh, he's moving in the right circles. And Matteo Toole is very good friends, not particularly with Leo Varadkar, but he's very good friends with Leo Varadkar's partner, Matt Barrett. They're both Gael Gorey, they both grew up in the same part of the country. Um, they're friend, very friendly. They, they Worked both in the trained together in St. Vincent's yeah. Hospital. So that's something that people don't really uh, um, seem to connect with, is that this essentially is the equivalent of Boris Johnson giving his wife's uh, best mate a contract, which has a value of about a quarter of a billion euros. Covertly, the idea that it was done in some sort of... Uh, move to uh, to reconcile general practice it was is ludicrous and embarrassingly poor because the NAGP were almost dedicated to the destruction of the IMO. So you were frustrated, you, you thought it was unethical that the document had been leaked? Well I, I thought, I knew it was how business was done and remember when you're in a position like me uh, to to do something about this type of stuff you have to have proximity to it. I mean mm -hmm. Many would say, well, I was a crony as well. I mean, I was, I was involved in, in business in Ireland for probably 30 years prior. And there was a lot of, of that uh, inappropriate influencing done um, uh, via politics, via sport, via intimation, via family, via uh, the old school tie, via the Gar Club, the rugby club. It happens. Isn't and that the way? It is happening. Isn't that this the way was a specific moment where I thought, look, I spent three years of my life. And by the way, just on the NAGP, I did... Everything I did for the NGP, I didn't charge them, I didn't invoice them, I never benefited rem remotely. I didn't bill them whatsoever. I was doing what I was doing with the union to try and assist Matt, uh, who I'd become friendly with. And because I also thought that if we can rescue the union, we could then implement the community hospital ideology, which would be central to its uh, existence. So, But I, I, I never billed or But you're essentially, I know you don't I like the term whistleblower, but mm -hmm. um, the, you were able to... Um, to make such an impact because you were um, an insider. And people don't understand that, that um, to, 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 in, in order to get people to expose wrongdoing in the system, you have to be indulgent of whistleblowers. Yeah, of um, and yeah. not, not all of them behave perfectly all of the time, yeah. but if they're whistleblowing, they should be given a pass. Um, if they're whistleblowing about something that's an yeah. enormous amount more serious than yeah. anything that they've yeah. been involved with themselves. I, I think it's important to say though, I mean, my motivation was probably that I'd spent probably three years working at Community Hospital Ireland, again, with no pay. I didn't pay myself while I, when I established that company. Um, I had done it in partnership. It accrued serious you know, bills. You don't get legal advice and you don't do that stuff without paying your way. And I paid it all personally. So at the end of it, when I saw the culmination of the community hospital ideology with the, with the NAGP, when the NAGP collapsed, 
uh, due to my report, uh, you know, the community hospital ideology very rapidly fell away. The phone stopped ringing. When you stand up and you say, look, this is corrupt, this, this mm-hmm. thing, it's, 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 it's probably been operated illegally. And that was, was well it, before oh, you. Oh, you yeah, there's an, the an ODCE operate, uh, uh, Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement investigation began. Uh, into the into the operation, which, which still hasn't reported. Well, I, think. I think it hasn't reported. Yeah, I think that's something you'd have to check, but mm. I, de- I don't mm. think it still mm. has. So that was the beginning of my sort of, uh, if you like, movement towards saying, well, look, you know, nothing was going to happen in, in in the medical system, which was a <coughs> not for profit, which was going to be taken seriously by the state. Okay, so just, I just wanted to to, to direct <coughs> towards the the um, your involvement in in, in the Veradker thing. So just just take. So you decided that you were going to expose this. Um, scandal. Yeah. To, so what did um, what did you do? Were you, um, Paddy Cosgrave was a mutual mm. contact for both of us. Yeah. So just take us through that. Well, I, I was watching the uh, some of the stuff around COVID. COVID had happened, of course, and I was reflecting on what what we done in community hospital. And the, I spent three years of my life promoting it, traveling the country as, again. And this wasn't a, a motivation for, for, for money. This, I've read all sorts of stuff online and on Twitter. People saying that, oh, I, I exposed Veradker because I didn't get a big contract. I didn't want a big contract. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a company limited by guarantee, which couldn't make, m- make money for me. And I, wasn't, I didn't take money, nor did I seek it. So that, people find that difficult in Ireland, of course, to comprehend that somebody might actually do something because they actually care about the, the health system and care about, you know, uh, accountability but I mean I was heading for 50 I had you know a fairly secure life and I thought to myself well what am I going to do with the, what the knowledge I know I can just sit back and and do a bit of consulting I can you know and I could have easily done that and I was in the middle of doing a consulting project on a fairly big uh, project in, in in the west of Ireland uh, which immediately collapsed as soon as I, I came out and, and exposed what had happened so I decided look I, I've probably got you know another 20 good years in me uh, and the impact that the community hospital model would have had would have been marginal compared to the impact we may be able to have if we start to expose and demand political accountability in Ireland. And you don't get much. So that was the essential bigger, equation. Uh, yeah, you don't get much bigger of an opportunity to expose cronyism and backslamping and influence peddling than when it's the actual prime minister has done it. Because it takes to the process of what you did. Well, what I did was, I mean, I I, I was friendly with Paddy. We were discussing stuff on on COVID and the serial mismanagement of procurement around COVID. There were some issues there. And Matthew and Paddy had had a bit of a spat, I think, online. And through that, I, I began to think, you know, Jesus, I'm going to go back through my stuff and see what, you know, what, what do I know about this? What can, we, what can we talk about? And, you know, the, the document came up, the whole process, what, uh, you know, the covert nature where Veradker had handed it to, uh, to Matthew his own document, you know, getting it sent by a courier out to the government jet. It just was like a bad Netflix movie. You know? So what did you do with it then? Well, uh, I, I sat with uh, with you, Michael, and we, we, we went through it. I, I told you what had happened. Uh, I suppose we worked on it probably for... As a partnership. It was a partnership. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were probably three months going through everything uh, between the jigs and the reels because when you're, you know, despite, you know, deciding that you're going to, to, to do this, there comes a moment, like a red button moment, where you've got to actually press the button and your life will change for the and moment. And that was very close. It was only very close to publication that we realised that the thing yeah. stacked up um, legally. Yeah, I mean, and then, of course, the old issue that he may have broken the law and initially it was the Corruption, uh, sorry, the Official Secrets Act and then the Corruption Act. 
Um, so you, it begins to very quickly gather pace from where the mainstream media totally ignored it. And you sit down with people, the head of news and RTE, you show them the, the, everything you've got, which we, you published. And you sit down with the senior reporters from the Irish Times, and they ignore it. You, it compounded my view that this story had to be told. Okay, so 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 you were you've been frustrated. We've all been frustrated with the um, pickup of the story by the um, mm. mainstream media, isn't that? That's that's been a big part of. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think they have. I think they have now picked up the story, and it's probably one of the biggest. Play- I've been told by senior editors in in the big titles that it's probably the biggest political story. Of the last decade at least um, I think in any other European country Mr Varadkar would have at least uh, resigned so does he not have the benefit of the presumption, <coughs> presumption of innocence that he well he admitted in, in Dáil Éireann in our parliament that he did wrong and that what he did was wrong it was morally wrong and it was inappropriate well, you know I can't remember but he certainly didn't words. admit that he committed a crime he didn't no and, and I mean it's not for me to suggest he committed a crime uh, I, I think it's for me to present the evidence to the public who are serially presented as idiots by the media and by politicians I mean remember our, our mainstream media we're a very small country we're the size of a, 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 a medium British city and we have a media which essentially has given up on investigative journalism, actual journalism whatsoever, because it's a very dangerous place to be. And I've been told this by mainstream employees. I mean, so what lesson know, did you learn learn from that then? Because you've been involved with a, a new online initiative, mm-hmm. um, Ditch. The Ditch. Yeah, I mean, the lesson is quite simple. I mean, when I when I presented the information as presented to you, which has led to a, the, probably the longest running criminal investigation into a senior politician in the history of the state that same evidence which now has a file with the director of public prosecutions was essentially ignored by the Irish Times and by RTE and you know and the, the, initial, the initial excuse oh, we can't verify that these messages are real so I met them showed them the messages on my phone rang the numbers still nothing until we broke the story and they were forced to, to and it was it. implied that the that the that it was obviously not criminal which was put a lot of pressure yeah, on us as, 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 as the as the principal informants yeah, yeah and it was also and implied still, that we were going to be sued and this is yeah. this you know that that Frank would sue me and you and you know cripple us that my businesses would be destroyed that was there was threats and and what have you but and you, it's still I, being implied that it's a that, that, that it's self-evident that the file will be um yeah. rejected by the yeah, and it was implied DPP. that Trump would lose the and election it was implied that brexit would never happen it was implied that Putin would invade Ukraine. Okay, so, so the lesson for you was that you needed to be involved in forming your own um, new media outlet. Yeah, well look, uh, you become very much, uh, it, the world becomes a very small place when, when you do this type of stuff because, you know, you don't imagine it's going to be as big as it is, that you're going to be become sort of, of, of notoriety or infamy, whichever way your political persuasions would be. You know, you're accused of being a political activist. I think Bracker said last week that I was a politically motivated liar, essentially, uh, in, in California, um, which is painfully untrue. I'm not in any political party. I have my own political views, of course, but I'm not in a political party. I, I spoke to all of the opposition parties and some of the government parties when this happened. They actually met with me. But talk, talk to me about the ditch and setting up the ditch. Well, ditch is a... Uh, sort of an online platform. It's kind of a fresh kind of approach to investigative journalism where we're looking at basically dysfunction in Irish politics. And who's involved in it? Um, I'm not going to say who's involved in the writing end because they, they've decided to maintain their anonymity so far. But I think 
given the successes of the scalps that are being carved in, that might change soon. I think I've um, reason to believe but, they're ready um, to go. I'm a director of it, and uh, there's two other directors, and Paddy Cosgrave is involved as well. Paddy uh, is helping us out with his, his significant media knowledge. Why did you not... Um, why, what was wrong with Village? Well, we called out to your place for your sleep. Uh, <laughs> probably drunk. <laughs> okay, so tell us about your uh, politics. Well, I, I suppose I was thinking about this. I thought you might ask me that question and I, uh, as I was driving in. I was thinking it's, so, it's almost so irrelevant what kind of political party is running a country. It's all about how they run the country. And so I suppose I'm a centrist in the, in the view that I would just like things to work. I'd like political accountability. I've seen so much political dysfunction and lack of ownership. Are you a nationalist? Uh, I'm a very sceptical nationalist in that I consider myself a patriot in the United Irishmen term of it. I, I think that was the, probably the greatest, single greatest political movement on our island was the United Irishmen, you know, liberty, in the French model of, of equality. So in terms of political parties, do you, do you, <clears throat> for what, for example, do you think of Sinn Féin? You, 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 on, on, you're a big force on Twitter. Mm. Um, nearly as big a force as Village now. Um, what do you like? You you seem to be quite well disposed towards Sinn Fein. Is that a is well? That a real I'm, thing? I'm I'm well disposed towards Sinn Fein because they're a competent uh, or have been a competent at least uh, um, opposition. In but you're the a floating voter essentially. Well, I will vote. I certainly would never vote Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael ever again. I think it's that would be preposterous. I don't think anybody could. I don't think anyone could vote for the Green Party after they licensed this unholy government into power and have now so tell me would you um i know it was mooted that you were going to stand in um in the um by-election um yeah. late last Not year by me. um would you set up a political party um no i don't think it's something i'm interested in. of course you can't rule anything out um i i would be interested in 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 political life but purely as a disruptor purely as someone that would ask really awkward questions okay. and, and not be in the golf club with the guys who I'm trying so to So Mick and Claire or Neil Richmond and David McManus? I'm Mick and Claire 100% Okay um, so I'm going to ask now some just some um, some personal questions so how many pints do you drink a week? Jesus it depends if you're in town if you're around probably I, I'd probably go out twice a week for a few pints but my wife would and how, how, many, how many tweets do you um, do you publish weekly? Probably twenty, maybe I don't know. Okay. Um, are you good in the scrap? I'm, I, 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 I'm dangerously unconcerned about physical scrap. But hopefully, I, like myself, I, retire, kind of, retired. Retired scrap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where would you see yourself in ten years? Um, maybe in prison. And um, tell me about your. What do you have strong views on the environment? Yeah, I do. I think these are questions I'm going to ask everybody. Actually, yeah, I, I think I think the problem with the environment in Ireland is that it becomes something central to a political ethos. It should be central to everybody's ethos in everything we do around our society. It shouldn't be we're a green party. Everyone and is equality be. a big um, big thing for you? And if so, um, equality of opportunity or equality of outcome? I think it's equality of opportunity. You can't you can't insist people uh, uh, take opportunity. You can only just eat. You know, appropriately offer opportunity. I think. Okay. Um, anything else? Yeah, that's it. And now we're going to have a chat about the situation at a board planola. If you live in a house. Or if you want to own a house, this should be of great interest to you. 
Thanks very much, Morgan. Um, so I'll just uh, talk a little bit about the quite complex factual background, and um, I'll start with um, Paul Hyde and, 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 and who he is. He's the uh, he's the deputy chairman of, of, of um, on board Planol at the moment. But his background is as an, an architect um, from Cork, uh, and he also has a master's in planning. He ran a thing called the uh, the Hyde Partnership, which is a, apparently a multidisciplinary design and planning practice. Um, he was a friend, a yachting um, friend of Simon Coveney, the current Minister for Foreign Affairs, some years ago, and I think they, they owned a, a yacht. They co-owned a yacht. Co-owned a yacht. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think both of his parents were in Fine Gael and um, he uh, donations, I think his father gave donations to Fine Gael. Um, but anyway, he was appointed by Phil Hogan to um, board Planola in uh, 2014 and then promoted by another Fine Gael, uh, Minister Owen Murphy, um, to deputy chairman a few years ago, uh, increasing his salary from €110,000 to €140,000. His speciality in the board is that he's in charge of the um, uh, strategic housing developments, which are a, a contentious um, stopgap whereby local authorities are bypassed and applications for big um, residential developments and student housing go directly to on board Planola. Um, and they've been very controversial, typically on a large scale. Um, Misery farms. Perhaps. And in so, so a lot of them were challenged. Most of them were challenged in the, or a lot of them were challenged in the high courts. And 85% of those um, th- those judicial reviews in the high courts succeeded, very embarrassingly for Bor Planola and um, not um, to. Um, excitingly, from the point of view, of Mr. Hyde himself being in charge of them, he's perceived to be. Um, one of the more um, pro-development um, members of the board. Um, but that's um, small stuff, really, by comparison with um, the allegation that um, Ditch um, have made in a series of stories um, recently, um, which are about ethics and um, perhaps, um, again, law-breaking um, in some of the things that he've done. So I suppose from my point of view, I was, I was um, chairman of Antashka for years and uh, I'm immersed in the whole planning sphere. And Borplanola um, over the last few years has been about as bad as it has been ever for any time over the last 30 years. The big important background of Borplanola that it was set up in 1976 um, because there was a sense that the minister, um, when he had charge of planning appeals from local authorities, wasn't doing a very good job and that it was a little bit dodgy. So Borpanola was put in place to be a, uh, an incarnation of probity in, in, in planning. Then a few years later, when there were a few problems, after Ray Burke tried to pack the thing with his um, acolytes, they introduced a very stringent um, system of panels and interviews for um, for members of the board, particularly the chairperson. I was actually on uh, one of those interview panels, so I've seen that the whole thing is it's imbued with a, with, with, with a stringent propriety, and it has largely avoided any scandal over the um, over the decades. And so this is big news for Board Planol, which is such a crucial um, place in, 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 in politics and in, in in particular in planning against a background of the planning tribunals which of course found that there was um, endemic um, planning corruption 
um, throughout the system some years ago. So the problem from my point of view, Mr Hyde doesn't really seem to have appreciated that in a salary of 140,000, it's not really, I think, in the spirit of, 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 of membership of the board that you would continue um, property development on, on, on the large scale that he seems to have been involved with. Um, but uh, there's no real need to go into too much of the details of, of, of what he was involved. But he's clearly involved with a vast range of um, of developments. Um, but in particular, he has latterly failed to declare those developments on the Board Planola Register, which is very important that if you do have properties, um, that you declare them um, to the board. And failing to do so, um, unfortunately, from his point of view, is a is a crime. Um, and he's also been involved in conflicts of interest where he has voted on schemes in which his relations have been involved. And also, not alone are you supposed to um, distance yourself and not be involved in the decision, recuse yourself, but you're certainly not supposed to be voting um, on those decisions. And again, if you do that, um, that's a crime. Most tantalisingly, there's a... Uh, so the, those are crimes under the Planning Act. I think it's Section 147 and 148, those two. But there's a... a from his point of view, perhaps the, 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 the most dangerous... Um, issue is that if you're a member of the board and you engage in what's described as a composition or an arrangement, which is essentially if your financial affairs are compromised because you have to, uh, you have to offer somebody less than you owe them because you can't afford to pay them. And he seems to have been involved in multiple receiverships and, and, and court cases that were settled and so on that seem to, to fit the bill. If you do that, you are self-vacating. You're no longer a member of the board. And so Village, in, 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 um, in an article and in a complaint that I lodged um, to uh, Board Planola Direct and, and, and copied to um, the minister has made the case that he has, hasn't been a member of the board since he um, engaged in the first of those um, compositions or arrangements, which obviously poses problems for all of the decisions that he's been, um, that he's been involved with and maybe some of the, AH, the SHD things that, he, um, that he's presided over because he hasn't been a member of the board mm -hmm. for, for, for something. Decisions that have to be appealed. That's a very good question. I mean, the, the eight years of, of potential conflicts. Eight years. Yeah, potentially up to that's, up in to terms, that. In terms of bricks and mortar, that's tons and tons. Of the, tons. Today, there was an announcement that there's a legal action being taken against the board planola on the yeah. basis of a decision made. And I've been inundated with people um, claiming which is significant in the in, in I think it's going to be in the high court. I could be wrong. Um, uh, I think. Michael's been quite diplomatic as he has to be, and we all have to be very careful to, to you know, follow the lead that you know people are innocent until they're found guilty of something, of course. But there's certainly you know uh, significant questions to be answered by Mr. Hyde about his his behaviours, and the ditch investigation, which I was party to, I didn't uh, uh, lead it or anything of that nature, but it's been you know incredibly deep and forensic almost in its analysis of the decisions of the board. And extraordinarily wide-ranging, the stories yeah, are just... it's extraordinarily wide-ranging. Wide so it's a failure to recuse himself from decisions which he had obvious material or familiar associations with. So the, the operation of the board, which is meant to be an oversight for due diligence and, and good practice, yeah. has become now the focus of a ministerially appointed uh, senior counsel in, in looking. So this is the beginning, in my view, of a significant uh, issue for Borplanala and the whole idea that 
that a an apparatus of the state, which was formed, as Michael very eloquently put, to police these decisions, which were riven with with corruption, essentially prior. I mean, back in the in the prior prior to its inception, there must have been rampant inappropriate. Well, it was like the minister's grandeur was the favourite. Yeah. So I mean, the fact that this institution, which I think is respected and was respected, That's I think uh, personally, I mean, you know, there are some institutions of the state which you think, you know, they they make the right decision, and this has really opened. And how do you think it seems that Borb Planola has dealt with the the scandal since it arose? The problem is when you have serial dysfunction in, in the apparatus of the state. You do get plenty of opportunities to, to move from one catastrophe to the next, and yeah. people become uh, immune to it. You, you we get, don't we don't see it anymore. Drunk. You go or corrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're grand. Tired of it. Yeah, You're grand. That, yeah. it is that thing. Of yeah, but there's a huge amount of the the impact that on board planola, similar to our health system, health and justice are probably the only two things in Ireland. Uh, that will impact everybody. Everyone will interact with the health system. Everybody will, or their family will. Inevitably, you will all die. We'll all end up in, uh, in hospital at some stage. God forbid, and so will our families. Like, uh, also, on board Planola has a huge impact on the ability of, of citizens to build homes, yeah. to access homes, which and, which is famously not being done competently. Not being done competently, and the and, fact and that the now we, we've exposed potential serious. Um, maladministration of that that system, uh, and we've done it. The Irish Times didn't do it. Yeah, no. I mean the Irish Independent didn't do it. No. I mean the Irish Independent is run by a billion euro uh, organization. They didn't do an investigation. Is that you know, possible? Why why is this small, um, um, you know, brand new investigative platform doing this type of work? Why is Michael? Doing this type of work. I'm going to specifically suggest it's because neither of your publications have a weekly property supplement. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. Or, um, you know, you, you really don't want to, you know, when you're, when you're, when, you know, look, I've seen the evidence firsthand, and I can say this without fear of, of any sort of issue with it. I've seen the WhatsApp groups that the political parties operate to the journalists. I mean, they basically spoon feed. You know, we, we refused. The one thing we decided in a ditch when we established it was we weren't going to even read press releases from political parties. We weren't even going to read them. Good we were going to go and find out what was happening. And, and it takes immense amount, a huge sort of amount of forensic and boring, repetitive work to find it. But it's there. The fact that we can do that. Yeah. Why hasn't... The, the mainstream media have been doing its job here in this country. And I would suggest the reason is very simply because the mainstream media is predicated on that dysfunction, just like the private health system is predicated on the failure of the public system. So it's a circular dysfunction, which is very well funded. Uh, and I think you don't shit where you eat. And the mainstream media eats in Leinster House. It gets its leaks. It gets its... Uh, it's spoon-fed journalism from these same sources yeah. and if you shit where you eat you'll be cut off because there's always someone behind you if the Times doesn't get it the Examiner will the Indo will etc so it's narration the Independent and the Times have become narrators of Irish society when it's safe enough to step up and the bullets stop flying Kiev is full of journalists there was only one or two there when the bullets were flying yeah. so the, the Indo and the Times will emerge when the air is cleared to start narrating what we've already seen so that is not journalism, that's reporting. They just report on what's safe to report on. They don't well, actually go after the stories. What, it is. I mean, it's what it's Ditch and, and Village are doing is journalism. Yeah. It's dangerous. How would you define journalism? 
Well, journalism is finding the truth and presenting it to the citizens to decide on how they're going to vote. Yeah. And hope that that has some impact on, on positive societal change. I like that like, Pilger thing as well, you know, like yeah. you, you tell somebody the weather. Somebody says it's sunny, somebody says it's rainy. It's not your job to say both, it's your job as a journalist to look at the fucking yeah. window. I think, I think, so. I think you have to take sides in journalism. So we, we decided we were going to focus on, on the most mundane crookedness from a county council to the most impactful crookedness potentially yeah. in, in state bodies, which which curate the most important parts of our lives as citizens. We fund this state. We do. We pay our taxes. We live here. We suffer the catastrophic um, uh, you know, consequences of political ineptitude. Yeah. So we need to pursue that and, and demand accountability. I think also... What are my politics? My politics are, politics are relevant in this country. We've seen that with the, that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, these two sworn enemies that said they dined in each other's blood yeah. before they coalesce. When yeah. Sinn Féin came up, who said, we're actually going to change some things, yeah. you know, suddenly their best opponents. They discovered they, they all may, along they were the Tory. You know, yeah. And I mean this in the fullest sense, they may die in the ditch. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> but I, th- I think that um, there's a general perception that the agenda of Bor Planal is, is, is esoteric, but of course planning determines so much of our lives. It determines quality of life. It's, you know, like I, I have a big bugbear. I don't think the facilities that are available, the public facilities, the amount of parks, the amount of playgrounds yeah. um, are what they should be in this country. And that's because of bad planning. We live mm. in a place where there's very little to do at weekends because we haven't planned for, for good things for people yeah. to do, as well as, of course, the pent-up yeah. you know, problem. Well, one thing COVID housing. did was yeah. show us that and affordable housing. we can stand outside on the street and we can have a drink and we can talk and we can reconnect with each other when we couldn't go into the pubs. There was a particular pub in Dublin where we used to sort of, uh, you know, what's the word? Uh, we were like moths around the flame in the garden of that pub. Or, it became a word, great yeah. place. It was great discussions. Is that not called alcoholism? <laughs> well, no. I mean, it was aided by alcoholism, but I think, Feud. you know, the fact that we realise that you can, uh, we, we, we Irish can actually be outside, even yeah. in bad weather, yeah. if, you, if you sort of, I think they're going to pedestrianise uh, Cable, Cable Street now, I think it's, it's a pretty brave idea, but those things, see, the, the crisis gives the opportunity to think differently, and I think right now what we have to do is look at why, why do we tend to look the other way, why do we feel that that's a given, whereas in France they would be. Well, why to le- there isn't an adequately honed sense of the um, of the public interest. Holding and people, a lot of, a there's lot no of holding people to account. There's always that thing when the Irish default is, you know, when it goes down and you feel lousy, blame it on the Brits, and you know because they were in charge for so long, and we have a a, a a political class or a political system that is great at pointing fingers away from themselves. And, and you know, Finna Gael, Finna Fáil used to be great at pointing at each other. Yeah. And actually, on the planning thing, Portland all, I remember when I was first interested in property, years ago I was a property journalist for a while, a photographer, and the, um, at the time it would have been very much Fianna Fáil, you had that run of unbroken Fianna Fáil governments, mm-hmm. and the moaning from the Fine Gael side was, but you know, I mean, they're fixing it for their mates. Mm. And are we not in a situation now, I mean, you talk about the how 
mobbed up is a very emotive phrase but I mean how much how much Fine Gael well, is, I, I is think, in the I think that's a very very important thing that um, it was always perceived that um, Fianna Fáil were worse on um, on probity issues than Fine Gael but they've, they, they, they took um, a rap on the knuckles particularly after the tribunals and I think they have made an effort to reform some of the types that they were around the place when I was hanging around in the county councils 30 years they're no longer uh, around and Fine Gael seems to be the party that has um, has the problem but for the moment, you'd have to give um, give credit to to, to um, Dara O'Brien and his reformed Fianna Fáil for at least having um, even though his this review that he's uh, set up has no statutory power whatsoever. Yeah. It's intent. It's it's inane. It has no power. Yeah. So it will inform what it wants him to inform, and it will be uh, what he doesn't want to inform will be will be neglected. So the real issue here is if there has been criminal uh, malfeasance in any state. Uh, uh, board or apparatus should the Gardaí be informed and should they launch an investigation because we've seen very clearly in, in from, from the Leo Racker saga that there's two things that bother Irish politicians the revenue commissioners and the Gardaí Síochána everything else means fuck all to them because they can duck out of everything else and there's two um, apparatus of the state that may be capable of delivering sort of a fatal blow to a political career seem to be Angarda Síochána and the Revenue Commissioners. So my view is that... And tribunals, uh, to some extent. Yeah, well, so, 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 yeah, but, to but some extent. That thing, you know, you'd be so, judged by God long before you'd be judged by a tribunal. Yeah. Yeah. Or so, the guards yeah. in some cases. So in reality, I think something that was really innovative about what we did uh, was to make that criminal complaint against Racker, which would form the basis for the investigation. And was unorthodox. unorthodox. It was unorthodox. We, we, we thought long and hard about doing it as well, but thankfully with your legal background, we had some sort of in-house, and we had some opinion from, from very uh, bright lawyers as well who helped us out. So I think there's a naivety from the public that we believe that a, an investigation by Remy Farrell, who's paid by the minister, to suggest that Remy Farrell will deliver anything that's going to irk the minister that's going to see the public light of day is incredibly naive. Well, certainly if he doesn't get appropriate terms of reference. So just we're going to wrap up here, but just finally, has the ditch got more to um, to, to, to publish on, on, on Borplanola? Yeah, I think there's some more. Yeah, I think now that it's in a, in a sort of a stage where it's pre-legal as well, and I think um, with some, some legal threats against you, um, of course, which is endemic in Irish media as well to, you know to be tried to bully and scare everyone off from telling the truth which doesn't really work with us so we're going to keep doing it so uh, there is more uh, so we're going to sit tight and have a look uh, at what what emanates from from the inquiry probably I'd imagine um, but there are other stories there are other there are plenty of other places to go Ireland is like a a, a fossil rich beach and you're a kid with a hammer you know it's uh, you know yeah. so it's, it's, there's plenty to look at you know who would have believed that you know um, you you would find such dysfunction, you know, in one of the in in a state institution which is essentially beyond reproach because we expected that of them, you know, we didn't think we'd find anything, but we did. So that only you know whets the appetite, I suppose. Okay, thank you very much. Tired of corruption, sick of our political establishment. Maybe you believe in transparency equality and fairness. Listen to Village Podcast, hosted by Michael Smith and myself, Morgan C. Jones. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcast content. And please, 
Follow the links attached below to support our show.